As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Yo, technology. What is it all about? The CEOs accountable for how they treat their workers. So when I say one, two, three, you say solidarity. One, two, three. Solidarity. One, two, three. Solidarity. One, two, three. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. It has been a busy, busy week and we have a great show for you. But before we get to the main interview, which I think you're really going to enjoy, a couple things. One, I don't know if you heard, but Uber, little ride hailing company, they're going public. Yeah, so just over 10 years after Travis Kalanick founded the company as a black car service, it is an empire. Now it's making huge, astoundingly large losses and it's not clear how they're ever going to turn a profit, but it is an empire. Last year they passed 10 billion rides. And so when the company goes public, a lot of those workers will become millionaires overnight. And it also meant a few billionaires, Kalanick among them. And in case you didn't know, San Francisco is already the most expensive city in America. So things are about to get even crazier. As you might expect, not everybody is happy about this. And last week, I went down to Uber's headquarters to see for myself because there was a pretty big protest there. So demonstrators closed down Market Street, which is the busiest street in the city, to protest unfair labor practices or what they claim are unfair labor practices, terrible wages, and really the rise or solidification of the gig economy. We are the drivers too. A little bit louder, three. We want justice for the people. I spoke to one of the drivers. His name is Jeff Perry. He's a burly guy. He had a beard, long blonde hair, and he had a little Gig Workers Rising sticker on his T-shirt. And he was out there because he says, just since the turn of the year, as Uber began to really gear up for this big share offering, they started slashing driver payouts over and over and over. And when they changed the rates, you know, it's like, it's not, hey, in 30 days, look for this, right? You go to sign on to your app one day, and it says you must agree to this before you can work, okay? And you either agree at that moment, or you're out of your job immediately. And how often does it happen where they do change those? Oh, it's all the time. I mean, just since Christmas, it's like, I, I've had to click maybe four or five times. Every time it goes down. It's always down. They have not increased one, not a single time in the three plus years I've been a driver. Never. It has never gone up. So what is it now compared to when you started? Less than half. It's less than half of what I made when I first started driving for them. 
So what do you think you're making on an hourly basis now? Making after expenses, we're talking six, seven dollars an hour. How do you feel as a driver? How do you feel Uber views you, or Uber or Lyft? I think you do you drive for both? Yeah, yeah. I am one hundred percent disposable garbage to both of them. Disposable garbage. That kind of statement just stuck with me. But what is certainly true is that all these tech companies that are going public at the moment, there's really a growing tension about the wealth that, the, that they are generating for their employees, while these armies of contractors that work for them but aren't full employees, and the cities in which they live who aren't sharing in all of that wealth, it really is starting to create a, a real friction. and It feels like it's just getting worse. So I'm not really sure where it's going to go, but it's definitely something that it's palpable, and we're definitely going to keep writing about and reporting on. So we'll be keeping an eye, and I'm sure in the coming weeks we'll be talking more about it and maybe having some folks on to talk about it further. But I digress because we have a fantastic interview for you this week. As I mentioned, I was in L.A. Uh, recently, this month, at the Milken Conference. And while I was there, I did a bunch of interviews, and among them was Dan Butner who is truly a fascinating guy. So one, he holds a few world records for cycling, transcontinental cycling, including riding a bike across the Sahara Desert. But that's not why I wanted to talk to him. He has also studied, this is his job, as he's studied the places on Earth that are home to the longest living populations of humans and basically figured out what they all have in common. Now, as regular listeners will know, we have covered lots of this stuff around longevity. It usually involves these kind of off-the-wall ideas and science and really like kind of bleeding-edge stuff. But Butner's approach is totally different. He basically studied these populations that are full of, you know, people living into their hundreds, etc. And just figured out what they're doing. By basically boiling that down, we can kind of mimic some of their habits and not doing anything terribly revolutionary, no magic pills, no blood boys, you can probably live comfortably and healthily into your 90s. It's just about beans, sleep, and friends. I know that sounds weird, but that's actually kind of true. You will see. Anyhow, I will let him explain. So without further ado, I give you Dan Butner. Live from the Beverly Hilton in Los Angeles, California. In a really Danny depressing and, little uh, room. Danny and Danny show. <laughs> uh, cool, we're cooking, we're live, that's it. I have a favor to ask. A year ago, I saw your talk and it stuck with me. And one of the things that you did, which I thought would be a really useful way to kind of start this conversation, is you asked the audience a few questions about factors in their life and what effect that may have on their longevity. And I was wondering if you could do that here, because I think it's a really good way to introduce your work. Yeah, so what I did, I thought it'd be fun with all these you know, top finance people and bankers and, and government to actually calculate how long each and every one of them are going to live. And I use the questions that most strongly predict life expectancy at middle age. And the questions are, how many servings of fruits and vegetables, do you eat at least three servings of fruits and vegetables every day? Raise your hand if you walk at least 45 minutes a day or move some other way. Raise your hand if you sleep at least seven and a half hours 
a day. Raise your hand if you have not had unprotected sex with a stranger that always befuddles audiences and they look around <laughs> and that I catch them not yeah, raising yeah. their hand and they're yeah. all red. Uh, raise your hand if you have three good friends you can count on on a bad day. That's the measure of loneliness. Uh, raise your hand if you belong to a faith. Religious people live longer than non-religious people, but you have to show up. Church, temple, or mosque, yeah. it doesn't matter. And then raise your hand if you haven't smoked in the last five years. And since we're in California, I always clarify that it's tobacco. Yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, raise your hand if, um, if you believe you have the health and the desire to reach age 90. Because a lot of people don't want to live a long time. And those yeah. people typically don't. These are all predictors. And based on how many times you raise your hand, I can get a pretty good idea of how long you're going to live. And right now, the maximum average life expectancy of people living in the first world, whether it's England or United States, is about 93. If somebody tells you they're going to help you live to 100 with some genetic or hormonal or supplement, you can be pretty sure they have their hand in your pocket wanting to fleece you. Given the, the rate of science right now, or, or the, the level of science and the level of health care, if you do everything right, yeah. from now to the rest of your life, the average person will hit about 93. Women will do a little better. Men will do a little worse. And that's just assuming a kind of continued improvements in health care, technology, et cetera. Yeah. So, or is that just so, – so, for example, those questions you asked, I'm not going to say yes to all of those because I can't. But say I say yes to, I don't know, three – does that mean I'm going to live till I'm like 65? That, no, that's probably, you know, I, I'm looking at you. You're thin, you're yeah. fit, you're smart. You live in, you know, a healthy city, San Francisco. You know, you that if you answered the three of those, your life expectancy would probably be around 80. Okay. And if you, if you answered seven of them, you probably get an extra 10 years from that. And that's significant. Remember the type, you usually cover these sort of high-tech interventions that is going to lift the ceiling, potentially. Correct. Aubrey de Grey, I'm sure you've talked to him. Uh, he's been on the podcast. Yes, a very smart guy. My brand of longevity is avoiding how to avoid the things that foreshorten your life. So the value proposition, you know, for the average person living in London, they could live an extra 13 years if they optimize. That'd be the average. Yeah. So that's how I'm tr trying to help people get those years. And by the way, if they're getting those years, the older you get, the, he the healthier you've been. So people who are making it to that healthy age 90 as a whole have better years. They have more health than yeah, the cohort the, uh, this dying idea of in the health 60s. Span. Yes. Span as opposed to lifespan. Right. Right. So another way to put it, you've probably heard the term morbidity. Yeah. Morbidity are the bad years at the end of our lives. If you're, if you're in the cohort of people reaching age 90, your morbidity period is somewhere between one and two years. If you're in the cohort of people dying at 60, your morbidity is probably more like seven or eight years. So when people say, I don't want to live to 95, well, actually you do. And the reason you do is because you would, you would have been biologically younger at every decade and you would have been feeling better and uh, more fit and more active and, and probably happier. If you're happy, yeah. if you're in the top quintile of the happiest people, that adds eight years to your life expectancy. See, that's what's really interesting also because you often see these cases where, you know, a couple's been together forever. One dies. And the other one who is otherwise totally healthy, they just expire quickly. And I don't know if that has to do with just to, all of a sudden happiness goes away or depression takes over. What 
you know what physiological knock-on effects there are, but clearly there's something happening there. Yeah, I'm 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 surprised you know that. So if you've been married more than forty years, and one spouse dies, the remaining the life expectancy of the remaining spouse is about fourteen months. So the thing is, as couples, we grow together, and yeah. and there, and you do develop this symbiosis of. You know, you survive together and you thrive together. And when you remove half of that equation, the other half doesn't do so well. And it may be just because of the stress of grief, too. The death of a spouse takes about seven years to get over. And when you're 85, you don't have seven years. Yeah. So it's going to foreshorten your right. life. So, so marry a younger person. That's, that's the takeaway. <laughs> I've done that. Score. <laughs> um, so, so can we talk about what our blue zones or how so how do you what is your research and what is it based on how did you how are yes. we getting these conclusions? so it began with a, a grant from the national institutes on aging in the united states and a, many a, moons ago yes 15 years ago and okay. an assignment from national geographic and we proactively struck out to identify parts of the world where people live statistically longest so this is verified this isn't hearsay yeah it's math and it's not it's just people communities that just seem to have a lot of people who live a long time they're geographically defined populations right so uh, the longest lived women in the world are in okinawa japan or were that's disappearing the longest lived men in the world are the highlands of sardinia the noral province an island of Ikaria, Greece, you find a population living about eight years longer with about half the rate of cardiovascular disease and about one-tenth the rate of dementia you would expect to see really? in, in Great Britain. It's amazing. And, and by the way... Well, especially if it's Ikaria, because uh, a very, very dear friend of mine is Greek, and he actually has a particular affinity to that island. So I'm, Oh, that's rare. Yeah. It's one of these third-tier islands that yeah, most yeah. people have never yeah, even yeah. heard of. But part of the reason they live long is because nobody heard about them. So they've been left alone to incubate this um, this uh, lifestyle of longevity and haven't been polluted by the American diet yet. And this, I would say, obsession with comfort and convenience that is driving down life expectancy and elsewhere in the world. Uh, Nicoya, Costa Rica, this is an interesting place. Central America was very much third world up until about mm-hmm. the 1980s. They have the lowest rate of middle-age mortality in the world. In other words, a guy your age has the best chance of reaching a healthy age, 93, and they do so spending about one-fifteenth the amount an average American spends on health care. So this whole myth that you have to be rich to be healthy and live a long time is completely debunked there. And then in the United States, it's among the Seventh-day Adventists. uh, Where is that? They're, they're mostly concentrated in Loma Linda, California, but you see them in Walla Walla. Uh, they're about 25 million people. Just, they're conservative Methodists yeah. who um, celebrate their Sabbath on Saturday. And, you know, the other blue zones are kind of geographically isolated. Adventists tend to be a little bit culturally isolated insofar that, you know, because of their Sabbath and and um, certain other beliefs, they, they tend to hang out with each other. Yeah and perpetuate but i borrowed the term from my good pal gianni pes who, who he's the guy who identified the blue zone in sardinia and i borrowed it and made it a worldwide term right and it's really it's a concept it's a trademark now we got all these these uh, yep. charlatans like cosmetic companies trying to use it oh the <laughs> the in the longevity world there is no shortage of charlatans yeah a lot of snake so, oil so i'm trying really hard to keep it scientifically grounded 
so here at the bottom line, right in the middle here, people yeah. tend to wait. Here's the secret to longevity. None of these places where people are making it to 100, did they ever get on a diet? They never joined a gym or bought an elliptical or called a toll-free number and bought uh, supplements. The way we get it wrong in this country is we pursue health. And that never works. It occasionally works for the short run, but it fails for almost all the people all the time in the long run. When it comes to longevity, you have to do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing for decades, not just this year. So what does work? Shaping your environment so the healthy choice is the easy choice. So fruits, vegetables, beans, nuts are cheapest and most accessible. There's recipes to make them taste good. So that every time you leave your house and, and you know, Europe is way ahead of America in this sense. You can walk to the, your kids can walk to school, to the grocery store, to go yeah. out to eat, to see your friends. So you're not driving everywhere. Well, it's funny. I was, uh, we just moved from San Francisco to Oakland because we had a second kid. So that's why I'm not getting my seven and a half hours of sleep right now. <laughs> um, but also we moved, <laughs> we moved to a suburban area. And initially it was like, we have to, it has to be walkable. It has to be walkable. And we couldn't afford it. But longer term, I was like, we have to get, because I lived in London, and before that, Barcelona, before that, Seville. I never used a car, ever. Yeah. I was just was walking everywhere, and it was yeah. fantastic. You don't have to worry about your weight when you're walking everywhere. Exactly. Even and so now I'm eating. a car-based, and it sucks. It really does. I, I wrote another cover story for National Geographic since I've seen you last on the world's statistically happiest places. And to a T, the happiest places are the most walkable. Copenhagen, Denmark, Singapore, Boulder, Colorado. We evolved interacting with other humans. It's very hard to do that when you live out in a suburb and you drive, you get in your walk from your garage to your car, your car yeah. to work, et cetera. Cars stress us out. They follow the air. They cause accidents. And, and uh, the really enlightened cities in the world are designing proactively, designing their streets for human beings. Uh, they don't forget about the car, but they cars kind of an afterthought rather than rather than the human being the afterthought. And so, when you found these blue zones, how long were people living in these places? And was it the the question you asked at the beginning? Uh, presumably, those are the common themes that emerged when you went to all these different places. Right. Yes. That was my, my charge to identify the common denominators. There was nine of them. I write about it extensively in Blue Zones. And, and then Blue Zone Solution suggests, okay, here's, here's what the longest-lived people do. Blue Zone Solution is how to, how to actually do it. I make the argument you want to sh- shape your environment, shape your ecosystem so it's mindless. Right. If, if I give you a program that you have to remember or have to have discipline, You'll do it for a few months, and then you'll be bored, and there'll be some new program yeah. that you hear about, and you'll drop it. But when you shape the environment the right way, that can last for decades. Mostly, we're looking for places with low rates of the diseases that are killing us. So what's killing most? 70% of all of the people on Earth will die of a chronic disease. That okay. means a heart attack, a stroke, diabetes, some form of usually avoidable cancer or dementia. That's how we're... 100 years ago, we were dying of infectious disease. Yeah. Malaria, dysentery, you know, stepping on a nail and getting gangrene. We don't have to worry about those anymore for the most part. It's the chronic diseases. And these places are avoiding the chronic disease. So I tried to answer, 
what are these places doing to avoid those chronic disease and thereby live out the capacity of the human machine, i.e. 93. Right. And there's no genetic underpinning there to these communities? No. So genes, and this number's driven down since when I started, the general consensus was genes explained about 20 to 25%. Now it's as little as 15%. So in other words, if your parents died young, you're not necessarily going to die young. 10% or so is the quality of your health care. But a full 75% is your lifestyle and environment. Those are far and away the biggest drivers. Now, let me clarify that. When I yeah. say 15% is genes, you think of it as a spectrum. And one end of the spectrum, you have these people who run marathons and eat, eat bean sprouts. Yeah. And boom, they drop yeah, dead yeah. at 50 yeah. of colon of that some weird the, cancer. That is the classic argument of my friends who don't like, like I don't like to run, but I try to stay yeah. in shape. But like, Jim oh, well, look at that guy. He yeah. dropped dead running a marathon. 50. <laughs> and, and then at the other end of the spectrum, yeah. you got these guys who are 100 years old and smoked two packs of cigarettes and drank whiskey all day. So they're both outliers. They're both three or four standard deviations from the yeah. norm. But the two to three standard deviations of the norm, they're, they're, they're making it to you know, mid nineties with the set of genes that that right. hand they were, they were dealt. So I speak to, and you know, I speak to the, the mean and the standard deviation or two from the mean. Right. When did the book first come out? Blue zones book? I've written, I've written three of them now. Blue zones, lessons from the world's longest lived people that came out in 2008. And then I wrote blue zone solution in 2013, which is how to put it to work. And then, yeah. Two years ago, 2017, I wrote The Blue Zones of Happiness, which, which took a similarly statistical approach at how to stack the deck in favor of happiness. And that happiness has a physiological implication. Yeah. How do you measure that? And you know, how do you connect those dots? So about 80% of the behaviors that will get you to age, healthy age 90 or so, will make the journey pleasant. So socially interacting, having a faith, a belief, eating healthy food so you feel good. But another way to look at it, if you're in the top 20%, if you, top 20% who report high happiness. So if you're the happiest 20%, mm -hmm. happiest quintile, your life expectancy is eight years longer than the lowest quintile. So Working to be happy is also working to live longer. They're, they're inextricably linked to each other. And do we know how that, what the mechanism that makes, that connects, I am a happy person, therefore my machine, my body is in better shape or lasts yeah. longer? So unhappy people are more likely to be stressed, which, which triggers the inflammatory response and inflammation is at the root of every age related disease. Unhappy people are more likely to be depressed, more likely to commit suicide. Unhappy people are less likely to be socially connected and receive support from a social network. Unhappy people are less likely to stay fit. And then there's may just be a psychosomatic element to it as well. Right. Um, and similarly, to the other side of the, the um, correlational equation is we know that people who eat seven servings of fruits and vegetables are 20% more likely to be happy. Well, I don't know why. You just might feel better really? if you're not bogged down by... Seven servings know, a day? Yeah, of fruits and vegetables. That's oh, that what was... we should be eating, by the way. 
And that's what that, they do. Does in that mean, but how can you eat anything else, or is that the whole point? <laughs> well, the, I mean, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You typically have at least three or four servings of things. I mean, you have right. three servings on your plate, and you have a fruit or something like right, that. Right, 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 right. So that gives you twelve servings, and seven of them need to be fruits and vegetables. It's right, yeah. It's right, not right, that right. hard, but we don't think that way. You know, increasingly. Uh, meat has crept into our diet. If you're eating meat more than twice a day, your chances of uh, heart disease and diabetes both about triple. So fruits and vegetables are, you know, what your grandma told you was right for not only longevity <laughs> or happiness. And sleep. Sleep is the other thing which I find interesting because it does feel like people like Ariana Huffington and other. There's a whole there's a sleep industry that has kind of kind yeah. of feels like it's come out of nowhere. She stays awake late to write about sleep. Um, <laughs> So sleep is another one of those. There are some people who are genetically predisposed to be awake, and they're fine. Yeah. You know, Winston Churchill, famously. Okay, average person, you should be shooting for seven and a half to nine hours. That's optimal. And we know among centenarians, they're sleeping about eight, sometimes in two phases, and napping too, by the way. So the average American, I'm pretty sure it'd be the same in, in Great Britain you'd have about six to six and a quarter yeah. hours, you know, yeah. we're dep- and by the way, it's bad math because we think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to work extra late and mm-hmm. I'm going to stuff all this activity in my day and just sleep six hours. But people who are depriving themselves from sleep have shorter life expectancies. So if you look at your life as a whole, it is really good math. Uh, it's a good bet. Come hell or high water, I'm sleeping my seven and a half to nine hours. Right. You're going to function better. You're less likely to get a cold or other diseases. And you're, you're more likely to live longer. It's probably three or four extra years of life expectancy if you live your life well-rested than, you know, sleep-deprived like right. most people in the Western world. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And so do you walk around looking at this world in which we live and just like, what? how did we get here? Because it feels like the, the those questions you ask, I mean, most people would say no to, I don't know, half of that. I have a couple thoughts on that. First of all, both of our countries, until about 1960, there weren't enough calories. You know, fighting the Cold War, World War II, we don't remember this, but 
people struggled. There was rations. So we depended on enterprise, private enterprise, to provide enough calories. And we've done a really good job. The problem is we've done too good of a job. We're awashing calories, and that's partly policy, you know, grain and soybeans and and raising meat and yeah. it's too many cheap calories around. So there's no bad guy, there's no villain here. Also, you hear a lot of talk about individual responsibility. Imagine my finger waving, waving yeah. and waving at you right now. It's your responsibility to be healthy. Actually, I don't believe that. If I see an overweight American, it's probably not his or her fault. Because 1980, there were a third as many obese people then as there are now. A third. A third. Now, is that because... 1980, there were better diet plans or better gyms or people had more responsibility back then? No. Our environment has changed and we live in a place where almost every choice is a bad choice that are presented us when it comes to food. You really got to work hard to find a healthy plant-based lunch. You go to shopping. Very hard. Very hard. Yeah. And when you find it, it tastes like crap. So you're not going to eat that anyway. So what we have to do, I think, is systematically look at recognizing the problem, not continue to whitewash it and continue to blame, you know, poor people uh, for not having discipline and quit putting our faith in diet and exercise programs, both unmitigated failure failures, at least when it comes to public health and shape our environment so that it's easier for people to make the right choices. Right now, it's very hard, if not impossible. Yeah, you have to go out of your way. I mean, you can't walk to work. You get there at 3 in the afternoon, <laughs> and you'd be tired. <laughs> and uh, I'd have to cross the Bay Bridge, which would be a bit treacherous. Yeah, but if yeah. you lived in downtown London, which I'll be, by the way. I'll be there in mid-May. I don't know when this is. But if I'm there in mid-May, I want to meet everybody listening to this right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in person, I'll be at the pub. <laughs> What's a good pub to meet everybody at? Oh, there's lots. I mean, it depends on where you're staying. Just pick one. I'll go there. I'll meet everybody. <laughs> um, the Queen's Head. Queen's Head. On Essex Road in Islington. On Essex Road in Islington. I'll see you the night of May 19th at about 7 o'clock. You'll be there by the bar. Yes, yes. And the first three <laughs> people I meet, I'll buy a beer. There you go. Yes, yeah, so that's insane. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> Well, to that point around creating an environment that is healthier, presumably this move, this mass urbanization movement, this mass move of people from the countryside to cities, whether it's here, China, wherever, generally around the world, that's got to be a good thing, no? Broadly speaking, for what you're talking about. I think so. So I'm here at the Milken Institute now conference to to, uh, talk about designing cities. That's my main job these days. I was with the uh, mayor of Helsinki. When it comes to longevity or happiness, where you live is the biggest driver of how long you're going to live and how happy you'll be. I could go into it deeper if you want to, but that's the headline, where you live. You take a place, Kentucky, for example. Mm -hmm. Good Americans live in Kentucky. They they say the Pledge of Allegiance, and they believe in freedom, and and they have access to the same food. Their life expectancy is 20 years less than the life expectancy of people living in Colorado. It's a perfect example. When you take unhappy people living in places like Africa and Asia and Latin America and move them to Canada, which is a pretty happy place, within one year they report the happiness level of their adoptive home. Nothing else has changed. Their sex yeah. is the same. Their age is pretty much the same. Education, their diet will have changed. Sexual, 
it's the same. All they did was move. So moving from rural areas into cities, it very much depends what city you move into. If you move into a city in Kentucky or West Virginia, your happiness and longevity is likely to plummet. If you move to Boulder, Colorado, or San Luis Obispo, or Portland, Oregon, or Minneapolis, Minnesota, your happiness and longevity is likely to rise. Because your decisions are subconsciously engineered to be better in those places. Because it's easier to walk around, it's easier to find healthy food, it's easier to kind of live this more natural kind of human existence. Correct. And the social circle you're you're gonna fall into is probably healthier people whose idea of recreation is biking or playing tennis as opposed to, you know, sitting around with the good old boys and drinking yeah. beer and eating fried pork skin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I've it is interesting out, because if you if so if your job uh, you, you know if if what you're concerned with is this kind of designing cities and getting people to live this type of life it does feel like you are pushing water uphill a little bit. I mean I, I know that people are generally moving towards cities but we have especially in America most people seem to live a car-based existence and eat an American diet. Here's the way I guarantee we'll see America continue to devolve is keep it keep doing nothing and saying there's no hope. So what my team does, I have 200 employees who uh, work in 26 American cities. And in each of those cities, I have three teams. One team works with policies. We've aggregated policies that favor fruits and vegetables over junk food. Yeah. For example, I'll give you the most salient example. If you live in a neighborhood where there are more than six fast food restaurants within a half a kilometer of your home, you're 40% more likely to be obese. Similarly, if you live in a neighborhood where there are billboards that yeah. advertise junk food. They're kind of food yeah. deserts. Yeah, not even food desert, just being advertised junk. Right. Yeah. So cities can decide ordinance, no more billboards in this poor part of town, reminding people to go out and get a hamburger and a Coke. Ordinance, no more than three fast food restaurants within a half mile radius of, of any given place. So there are things that city very proactive and you, you can't tell a city what to do, Yeah. but you can give them policies that have worked elsewhere. And you take uh, mayor Betsy price in uh, uh, Fort Worth, Texas. I, I've worked with her for the past five years and we've seen the obesity rate drop in Fort Worth. It goes up really? every place else in Texas. It's gone down in Fort Worth. What have they done there? It's not a silver bullet, it's silver buckshot. We had a full-time staff, 35 people, who helped them implement policies that favored healthier food, that favored the pedestrian over the automobile, favored the non-smoker over the smoker. We have a Blue Zone certification for restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, schools, and churches. We got about 25% of all those places. So when you go into a Blue Zone restaurant, there's at least one plant-based option. When you sit down to your meal, you don't automatically get served bread and butter. You got to ask for it. In America, it happens all the time. Oh, I know. In America, it's just <laughs> yeah. They, uh, they it was really fun. <laughs> uh, many years ago, I had a Spanish girlfriend, and I brought her to America, and we went out to a restaurant, and she ordered a salad, and they brought this just kind of bucket of salad, <laughs> and, put it in her, and she was just <laughs> like. Oh my God, what is this? <laughs> she was just like she just couldn't believe that this was like the standard. But it was yeah. really funny, especially coming from Spain, which is obviously 
they have a lot of meat, but it's Mediterranean diet too. So it's yeah, yeah. And just I'd love to get a sense of how you ended up doing this. What was your kind of pathway to becoming to writing the book and then starting this con- company? Because if I'm correct, you're you hold some Guinness World Records. Yeah, when when you were doing useful and productive things as a young man, writing, I mm. I, I set a record for biking from Alaska to Argentina biking around the world and biking across Africa, which has meant across the Sahara and across the Congo. How'd you do that? I don't know, like what kind of bike can make it through the Sahara? We customize our own bikes. Well, well we had Cannondale, but they customize oh, yeah. them for us. So much uh, it's like be- fat, fat, fat tires. Yeah, that's right. You let out almost all the air. Uh, we had GPSs and, and uh, CIA maps to help us navigate our way through. And our bikes had about a 35 liter capacity of water. So this and we, just sounds to like a horrendous experience. I mean, I'm sure it was. Yeah, you know, oddly, <laughs> the, the, you know, when you at first it's really, really horrendous, but then you sort of adapt to it. Yeah, and it becomes austerely beautiful. People think of the Sahara as big sand dunes, but actually, four fifths of the Sahara looks like a giant parking lot. Yeah, so that you can bike across pretty easily. So you were kind of doing extreme kind of adventuring. Yeah, like. so exploration, but always driven by curiosity. And then I started a company in the late 90s, that uh, exploration company that led an online audience, direct a team of experts to solve mysteries. And we called them quests. It harnessed the wisdom of the crowds. It turns out there's lots of dispersed expertise. You know, prof- old retired professors and yeah. the ingenuity of young kids. And it worked fantastically well and i didn't make any you know i for until i was 40 i didn't make any money all of a sudden i was a multi-millionaire but i sold this company right but along the way i learned how to a read academic papers and b network to the top people in any, any field and i developed a skill for synthesizing lots of information this idea to pursue longevity kind of followed that this idea of in a way, reverse engineering a, a mystery and systematically going at an answer. Right. Summing it up. So I wrote the Blue Zones and it became a big New York Times bestseller. I really believed in it. I knew that three months later, there'd be some new health book that would push Blue Zones off the shelf. Yeah. I said, I want to prove this works. And I got a grant from AARP. It's a U- yeah. And, um, big, big, that's, uh, Big association of retired, retired persons. persons. Yeah, yeah. They actually gave me the money, about a million bucks, to to build a, to manufacture a blue zone. So take the, these ideas, this blueprint that I distilled from all these five areas, and apply it to an American city. And it took about two years. And again, the approach was not change behavior, change environment, permanent, right. semi-permanent change in the environment. Silver buckshot, seventy or eighty of these. Lo and behold. Life expectancy went up by three years. Where? And, and this is Albert Lee, Minnesota. This is well documented. And healthcare costs dropped by 40%, as reported because by Because you basically put the system in place in this place in Minnesota. That, that's right. So we made it more walkable, more bikeable. We got most restaurants Blue Zone certified. They changed their policies to favor fruits and vegetables. We gave everybody purpose workshops like you see in Blue Zones and uh, got most of the population volunteering. Winston Churchill famously said, if you shape buildings, they will shape you. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with our cities. If you optimize your cities for health, you're going to become healthy. 
you start with the environment, but the culture soon follows. And to this date, they can. They, just last month, they passed a uh, ordinance prohibiting vaping in kids under 21. And they cited blue zones. Right. So people are knocking down the door to get at us. That's amazing. Yeah. So it got huge national news here, mainly yeah. because people kind of want health, but what they really want is better economics, at least mm-hmm. at the city level. Yeah, yeah. So when the city reported a 40% drop in healthcare costs, it blew up. We were big national news. And then all of a sudden my phone was ringing up. Oh, can you do it to my city? Can you do it to my city? And I go, figure, okay. And I got professional about it. And I, I teamed up with another operations company. And, and, and now we've done it to over 40 cities and places as big as Fort Worth, Texas. And right. The whole island of Maui, which is a very tough oh, really? place to go. Wow. Most of the island of Hawaii, the big island of Hawaii, Naples, Florida. Because it does feel like we're kind of at a decline, like a decline and fall type moment when you even talk about obesity. I don't know if there's ever been a point in human history where so many people have literally been eating themselves to death. Never. More people will die of overnutrition than undernutrition in this world. When you stop and think about it, it just feels crazy. Yeah, but, you know, if you walk around, the Milken Institute is very good, and Davos World Economic Forum. Well, Mike Milken himself said it's our food system. It's, it's going to be the most important economic issue in the next decade. So when you get these sort of thought leaders shifting their focus away mm. from, you know, increasing capacity, uh, manufacturing capacity, or technology, which has been the buzz for the last decade. This place is buzzing with the food system. The world's food system will kill 11 million people in the world this year. Just the bad food system. It's I mean, cost- just like contaminated foods and stuff. It's more what you said before, people prematurely dying of yeah. chronic disease right. and, and, and draining. In America, we spend about $3.7 trillion, 18% of our GDP, on largely avoidable diseases. 85% of all chronic diseases are avoidable. Yeah. And they're the result of a crappy environment. So the prize here is enormous. Mm-hmm. And where there's a lot of money at stake, you can get a lot of sharp people and, and will unleashed on it. That was a very long-winded way of saying, I think it's going to get better. Right. And I have two more questions, and I promise I'll let you go. One is on around, there's a lot of companies around... Um, doing stuff around the biome, the microbiome. They send you a test. You send them a little dab of your poop. You send, they analyze it and say, these are, the, these are the foods that you need to eat for your own body because some are, react poorly with your system, et cetera, et cetera. But this whole idea of food as medicine, movement, and it feels like there's a fair amount of snake oilery in there, but it feels like there's also some principle in there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a little snake oily, but they're right. You know, our microbiome, those 40 trillion cells at the end of our GI tract, drives our health more than just about any other organ, believe it or not. It weighs about three kilos. The only thing that microbiome eats, or mostly it eats fiber. And most of our diet here in America and your diet, you know, chips and fish and what do you call them, yammers and peas or whatever? They... <laughs> bangers and Bangers and peas. <laughs> bangers and mash. Bangers, bangers and mash. And mash. Gonna, yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll right give idea. you a cheat sheet before you go. <laughs> yeah. So so fat is metabolized in, in uh, your stomach and um, sugar metabolized in upper, upper intestine. None of, none of that fuels the 
the microbiome. And it's microbiome. It's that bacteria that governs our immune system, governs our the inflammation in our body, drives our mood, drives the hormones that makes us feel hungry. It's, it's been vastly under-celebrated. So I'll save you the money at sending in to find out what the yeah. optimal diet is. Just eat beans. The world all of a sudden started eating a cup of beans a day, which is wholly sustainable. Yeah. We would probably erase 50% of the obesity epidemic. Because if you're eating beans, you're getting enough protein, you don't have to eat the meat. It'd be pushing out more. Be put, First of all, you'd be fueling your microbiome. Yeah. You'd be getting protein. You'd be getting the trace minerals. But you'd also push out unconsciously because you don't need it. The more unhealthy right. proteins like pork and beef and bacon. Yeah. and. So beans, sleep, and friends. There you go. That sounds like a party to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have one moment from your round-the-world biking? Do you have like a a great story, anecdote? You must have been through some crazy things. Is there one story that sticks out? I'll tell you one from Africa. So crossing uh, the Sahara Desert one night, we just laid our tarp down, and we're just going to go sleep, and we noticed this hut with a, a light on and we walked there we opened the door and it was this one place in the Sahara where if you show up they'll feed you and it looked like a, something out of Star Wars it was yeah. dark kerosene lit they were all in jalabas the women all in in uh, uh, veils sit down around this vast paella pan so by pa- it looks oh, like yeah. the size of a table eating this uh, couscous and it was basically all grain, but in the middle, there was one glistening piece of mutton. And everybody is ravenously hungry. And the women sit down, and they eat from the rim towards the middle. And then we sit down. You know, and it's like a bunch of Star Wars characters and my brother and I <laughs> in Lycra. And we're all ravenously hungry. We're all eating towards that one piece of meat. And we got to that one piece of meat in the middle. It's just glistening, just yeah. calling your Beautiful. name. Beautiful, yeah. And we all looked at each other stood up and walked out and that little piece of meat stood there i don't know for some reason <laughs> that that story sticks in my mind yeah say, well in uh, spain they said that there's always like the one piece of one last bite that that like da vergüenza exactly yeah it's like no one wants to eat the last bite and be the person who eats the last yes. thing on the plate so that's true with mutton in the sahara and that is all the time we have i want to thank dan I also want to thank Jeff Perry for taking the time to talk to me on the streets of San Francisco about Uber and his experience there. And yeah, for those who are listening, Dan Butner, he was serious. The old Queen's Head on Essex Road later this month. Show up. He'll buy you a beer. You can figure out what you need to do to live into your 90s without ever having to go to the gym. So what's not to like about that? So that is it for this week. I hope you enjoyed it thank you for tuning in please take a moment give a rating and review it really does help so please take a moment to do that and i will be writing about video games this weekend in the newspaper so you want to tune into that it's actually kind of interesting so i'll be in the sunday times or online at thetimes.co.uk or on the twitters at danny fortson So that is it. I will leave you. Have a fantastic weekend and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.
VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 